0: Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly.
1: It's not just a punch in the face. It's not just a bruise. It's not just a scar. It's it's much deeper than that.
2: I'm not a chef. I'm a cook. I've never taken a class in my entire life. I get the passion to cook from when I was young. You know, watching my grandparents and my mother and everybody, there was a lot of cooking going on in my household. And I would be involved in it, and it just continued on from there. I never really stopped.
3: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. As the world slowly emerges from the pandemic, people are now faced with some dramatic issues that had gone quiet during the crisis. The virtual shutdown left many vulnerable people with little or no support. With that
4: in mind, we begin tonight with a story about victims who say even in normal times they are fearful about coming forward to get help. We're talking about domestic violence. Contributing producer, editor, Dorothy Dickey recently tackled this difficult issue and she has this report. In the beginning,
1: um, you know, he was gentle, he was kind, he was caring. Constantly told me how beautiful I am. We got married um, probably about two years into dating um, and we had um, a child, a daughter. We were um, very young. I had just turned 21, um, and he was only a year older than me. Throughout us dating, I would notice that um, he would make jokes um, that really weren't that funny. I remember saying to him, hey, that, 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 that joke wasn't funny. That was you know, inappropriate. It made me feel you know, a certain way. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, he would constantly apologize. And then it went from you know, the, the not so funny jokes, and then it went to um, actual name calling. And then it gradually um, progressed until it was physical, and then from physical, financial, and then um, eventually um, was isolated.
5: Domestic violence is rooted in power and control. It's when one person in a relationship tries to use abusive tactics to uh, establish and maintain power and control over an
1: intimate partner or a family member. And it takes many forms. It's not just a punch in the face. It's not just a bruise. It's not just a scar. It's it's much deeper than that. It's financial. Like, you know, it's the isolation. uh, Not being allowed to go to work. Um, social, um, not being allowed to hang out with friends or people that you're comfortable um, being around, then using the child for n- manipulation, using the systems. It, I mean, you name it. I can actually say that it was physical in the beginning. I was pregnant with the first, my first child. I got nervous because he was driving re- reckless, and I remember holding my stomach, and um, and the seatbelt tightening up around my my neck and my belly and I asked him to stop driving reckless and he just put his hand over my mouth and squeezed my face. That was a sign that I didn't recognize. I just, I always had to be on watch. Be very careful with my reactions to him.
6: Not everybody is safe at home.
1: And unfortunately, that seems to be doubly true now. So if you're hearing me say this and you feel unsafe, I want you to reach out for help.
5: Since the pandemic, we have seen a surge in calls for help. Our domestic violence helpline received over 17,000 calls the first year of the pandemic. Typically, our helpline sees about 10,000 to 13,000 calls a a year. Unemployment, financial hardships are all linked with um, increasing the likelihood that someone may use domestic violence. So now you throw in the pandemic there that exacerbated all of those things. Um, uh, We knew that it was a very dangerous time for people that were um, experiencing
1: violence at home. wasn't easy because first of all with the gradual escalation of the abuse um, I didn't identify at first what it was so I really didn't know the steps I didn't know what to do um, or how I would leave but it w- it was many many attempts you, you kind of get better at it at trying to leave and then you know this particular time uh, when I left for good I made sure I had resources I made sure I had a a vehicle. um, I made sure I had um, folks that believed me um, and that was really important even though there were many witnesses to his actions towards me whether it was physical, um, verbal, you know gradually, it became normal a friend of mine noticed there was a change in my behavior. I wasn't as open, and and I wasn't smiling as much, and she would ask me things like, how are you? And I'd be like, I'm fine, and she told me, she was like, you're not okay. I see what's going on. You're not the same Callie. She just saw a sudden change in, in me. to put a restraining order on him for the safety of me and the children. At the time, it was four children and I was pregnant. But um, once the fifth child was born, um, I knew that there wasn't going to be an option and I did not want to raise another child witnessing domestic abuse. Maybe like the third arrest, I I had had enough. And he was arrested because of physical abuse? or Physical. Yes. They were physical towards the children? Yes. Because we lived on his family's property, one of his family members said I needed to figure something out. The kids can stay. I wasn't, I just wasn't welcomed anymore. The very first call that I made, the shelter told me that they didn't have enough room for me and my four children. Um, So I had to go back to the drawing board to kind of figure out, all right, what am I going to do? I knew if I really wanted to escape, I would have to. Make the ultimate sacrifice, and possibly bring one of the children with me to the shelter. I wasn't going to leave the children with him, but I had nowhere to go. So the one I decided to bring with me is the one that depended on me the most, which is the infant. The other children were anywhere between four and ten years old, and they were in school. They're school-age children, and I didn't want to have them absent from school.
5: Children. Are the silent victims um, in these situations? About 28 to 30 percent of the times when police respond to calls of domestic violence, there are children present, and we know that the impact of witnessing domestic violence um, can be um, negative.
0: Because most of the time, the kids are there; they are witnessing um, this violence, and in many instances, you know, they don't quite understand that they may go on to act if there's no intervention at these critical times.
5: Typically, if it's a male child who's witnessing um, their um, uh, uh, father being abusive to their mother, then it may increase the likelihood that they would use violence in their own relationship. And similarly, if it's a female child um, witnessing abuse, it might increase the likelihood uh, that uh, she will experience violence in the future and be a victim of violence in the future. Many times, The police are the first responders. Victims of domestic violence often have very little options outside of calling the police in the immediate crisis.
7: Unfortunately, with every group of recruits, they need to be educated and understand some of the complications that that come along with a domestic violence situation. We've come to realize that we should really focus on offenders. So that's where our training focuses now, not to question why a victim does or doesn't do something why offenders act the way that they act.
5: There are communities where uh, they're never going to call the police, right, um, for help. Uh, So we have to invest in alternatives. And that may be because uh, maybe they're undocumented. Um, It can be that here they've faced racial discrimination at the hands of the police or police brutality. And so those are real barriers that, as a movement we have to contend with.
7: The challenges have to do with, you know, to, to where the victim's at. If we encounter somebody who's not ready to deal with the situation, then, then they're not going to you know, be, be, be helping us out and be working with us. So we'll be dealing with an offender who has an agenda, we might be dealing with a survivor who has an agenda, and then, and then there's the police agenda. A criminal conviction is, is the end goal of the criminal justice system, or well, that might be contrary to what the, um, what the survivor wants. Sometimes we'll have you know, survivors who will call and they just simply want whatever's going on to stop. They don't necessarily understand that there's a mandated arrest that's gonna go into this and then everything else that's gonna result from it. So it's it's really about finding some common ground.
1: Callie from soar i'm calling today because we are asking people that are concerned about domestic violence to join us if
7: we can make the survivor feel empowered like they have some say then i think we've gone a long way towards towards helping them to a healthier situation
0: sisters overcoming abusive relationships we truly appreciate them for having the courage to share their stories in committee and elsewhere. I know many of the advocates and the members are here today for this vote.
1: I think when people are in an abusive relationship, you don't realize you're in it. It's really about knowledge. Knowledge is really how you keep yourself safe. We were able to be part of the address confidentiality bill to ensure victims and survivors of domestic violence that their address would be uh, safe and confidential from anyone in the public, and more specifically, the abuser.
7: The act prevails.
1: I'm just thankful for all that I've learned, all that I have discovered about myself. I've learned that I am resilient. Um, there were many, many times I wanted to give up, but I didn't. I can now identify what domestic violence is. And I want to turn my trauma into purpose, and my crisis, and anyone's crisis into prevention. I am very proud of myself. It took um, a long time to accept the fact that all of that unfortunate stuff happened to me. I've come a long way the past 10 years. Every day is survival still.
4: Our thanks to Dorothy Dickey. If you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, you can call the 24-hour statewide helpline at 1-800-494-8100. Next, a recent United Nations climate change report reveals scientists now believe if greenhouse gas emissions are not reduced quickly, they could soon overwhelm the ability of
3: both humans and nature to adapt. Even if the Earth's temperatures rise just a few more tenths of a degree, The study warns that today's children, many of whom will still be alive in the year 2100, will experience four times more floods, storms, droughts and heat waves. As we first reported last March, harrowing projections like that are prompting many, including environmentalists, to take a second look at an energy source that's often associated with catastrophe and disaster. Contributing reporter John Smith explains
6: so the word nuclear tends to make people uncomfortable because i think a lot of people just don't know about it so the fear of the unknown makes people uneasy
8: caitlin ricola is a senior staff counsel at the nuclear energy institute back in 2013 fresh out of roger williams law school she moved to washington dc and began searching for work
6: i ended up connecting with some people at the nuclear energy institute and We just kind of hit it off. It was one of those serendipitous things, and I thought, let's give it a try. And from there, I've learned a ton about nuclear energy, the commercial power sector, clean energy.
8: And that education, she says, has also helped her become an advocate, joining several groups who promote the use of nuclear energy, including the organization known as Women in Nuclear.
6: One of the core, I guess, functions or um, roles that we play are going into schools and providing lessons on, um, on nuclear technology.
8: RICOLA is also part of Mothers for Nuclear, a group of moms across the country that have fought against the closures of nuclear plants. For RICOLA, an issue like climate change is personal.
6: I have two kids. Um, Emma is going to be three in December. And I just had a four-month-old in June. His name is Wyatt. What are we doing with the trucks? Um, like, yeah. A report had come out from the U.N. about, you know, that we had just reached a new troubling milestone in climate change. And I started to get really anxious about what my children's future is going to be. That anxiety became a little overwhelming. It was why I became even more passionate about advocating for nuclear.
8: But getting most people on board with the idea that nuclear energy might be better for the environment has been an uphill battle, mainly because of two defining nuclear incidents. The first began at 4 a.m. on March 28, 1979.
2: It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. As far as we know, at this hour, no worse than that. But a government official said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. The accident occurred here at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant a dozen miles south of Harrisburg.
8: Ultimately, half the core of one of Three Mile Island's reactors melted down. Less than 10 years later, in April of 1986, disaster struck again at a nuclear plant nearly 5,000 miles from Pennsylvania.
0: The danger may be escalating it's an atomic fire and the soviets can't contain it thousands may already have died or been seriously contaminated
8: both accidents fed to the rise of the anti-nuclear movement but in recent years as this union of concerned scientists video illustrates the planet is heating up at a faster rate than many thought possible
6: as if 2020 wasn't already considered one of the darkest years in recent history it was also the hottest year on record. Actually, the 10 warmest years ever have all occurred since 2005. This trend is not likely to change anytime soon. More frequent heat extremes are already having real implications for people in the United States right now. And people who work outdoors are particularly at risk. Right after um, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, kind of, the, you know, the world took a pause. Trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. But more recently, environmental groups have come out and said that nuclear has to be part of the solution because the climate change challenges that we face are far too great.
0: Our position is a very neutral one.
8: Dr. Ed Lyman is the director of nuclear power safety at the Union for Concerned Scientists in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: We've never taken a position pro or anti-nuclear. Uh, but we do believe that nuclear power has unique safety and security risks, and that those have to be uh, give, uh, given the fullest attention if we're if nuclear power is going to play a role in, in mitigating climate change in the future.
8: Many of those risks relate to the aging fleet of plants, originally licensed for 40 years. Many have already received a 20-year license extension, with some even beginning to apply for an additional 20 years.
0: And that raises the possibility that in certain types of accidents, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they really need uh, very high assurance that those kinds of systems are going to function even as they age and, and deteriorate. Last summer, we
8: visited the Millstone Nuclear Power Plant in Waterford, Connecticut. It's here in this mock control room that operators train to run a real nuclear reactor.
9: Uh, we've actually measured down to the millimeter. To make sure that that things that are in the control room are in the exact same location as they are in here.
8: Ken Holt works for the owners and operators of the plant, Dominion Energy. There's no surprise he lands on the side of nuclear power being the key to a carbon free source of energy.
9: Right now, Millstone represents 95% of the carbon free energy generated in Connecticut.
8: That's nearly half of the state's electricity needs coming from one source. But as nuclear plants around the country get older and more expensive to build new ones, the future, Holt says, is grim.
9: If millstone goes away, it's not a, a solar uh, farm that's going to be built to replace it. It's not wind power that's going to replace it. It's going to be natural gas. So you're you're going to take a zero carbon resource off the grid and replace it with a carbon resource, and that just makes your your job that much harder in in reducing uh, carbon in the atmosphere.
8: Still. Holt says his company's goal is to be net carbon zero by 2050.
9: So we are, are looking at how we can reduce our carbon impact on, on the environment or
8: uh, how we can mitigate it. Because of how dependent the area is on millstone to generate a tremendous amount of its energy, do you find that it's often easier in that license renewal process uh, because of the uh, understanding that there's nothing else to replace it? So.
9: The, the NRC process does not look at need at all. The NRC process is focused solely on safety. If the NRC does not think that it would be safe to operate the unit for another 20 years, they will not allow the license.
8: Created in 1974, the NRC, or Nuclear Regulatory Commission, is an independent government agency responsible for licensing and regulating civilian use of radioactive materials. Is the NRC doing enough in your perspective to regulate the uh, operations of aging nuclear plants?
0: We, we don't think so. One problem that we're facing now is that this aging population of plants is uh, facing a dire economic pressure in many parts of the country because of the low prices of alternatives, natural gas. So plants are shutting down and there's enormous pressure on those plants to cut costs. And where do you cut costs And things like maintenance and, and inspections and repairs and all the things you need to do uh, to make sure that plan is in good working order.
8: And Lyman says the NRC is not immune to industry influence.
0: Unfortunately, it's too susceptible uh, to that kind of pressure. So I don't um, believe that the agency has done enough to safeguard uh, the safety and security of these plants as they age. So then what
8: about looking into the future in terms of growth for specifically the nuclear energy industry? Uh, are you seeing that there is the potential for growth or has it seemed to have stagnated?
9: You know, there. I would say the, the potential for, for units like Millstone, a, a new 1,000 megawatt big uh, generating station are, are probably slim. Uh, There's not great chances of something that big being built again. But there is uh, the potential for small-module reactors. These are reactors that produce about a fifth of the power, but are about a tenth of the size.
8: A recent startup co-founded by Bill Gates called TerraPower is planning to do just that, by building a smaller 345-megawatt plant in Wyoming by 2028 the plant will use state-of-the-art technologies designed to drastically mitigate the safety issues of the past. But Dr. Lyman says that while the environmental community is more broadly looking to nuclear energy as one of the answers to climate change, the industry itself has been desperately trying to change their image for decades.
0: The nuclear industry has maybe 30 years ago realized that one selling point it had was that it's a low-power source of electricity, and they've been uh, pushing that message uh, for decades, but it's only really become resonant in recent years. You know, of course, there is merit to that, but you, again, you can't, you know, it's, it's a qualified argument. You, know, you, uh, you don't necessarily need nuclear power to mitigate climate change. It's not, there's no imperative if there are alternatives that can do things better and, and more safe. Let's build. As some figure out a way to
8: incorporate nuclear energy into its carbon-free future, there's one future on Caitlin Ricola's mind.
6: And it has, you know, legitimately crossed my mind on whether I'm being responsible having children and having more children. And so I don't know what kind of future that they are going to have, but I feel like all I can do as a mom now is do my very best to try and help set that future up but I think every parent in our generation is, is probably going to have it cross their mind of wh- what am I bringing my children into.
4: Now in our continuing My Take series, home cook Dan Rinaldi serves up some of his favorite dishes.
2: I entertain a lot, a real lot. And I ask people, what do you feel like having? You know, and they're like, oh, whatever you want to make, you know, just make whatever. But I want to know what they want to eat. And then I cook whatever it is they feel like eating. My name is Dan Rinaldi, this is my take on cooking. First of all, you have to have a lot of passion for it, number one. And I also believe that you want to grab the best and freshest ingredients that you can. But ultimately I believe it boils down to passion, how much you love cooking. You know, watching my grandparents and my mother and everybody, there was a lot of cooking going on in my household. And they would all be talking and just having a great time and I would be involved in it and it just continued on from there. I never really stopped. I've cooked for multiple reasons. Like, I'm on the fire department in the city of Providence, so it was self-preservation at one point because the meals were so bad, I just had to cook. It was just absolutely painful. So I started cooking there, but the meals have gotten a lot better throughout the years, that's for, for sure. For anybody that was starting to cook, you know, my biggest recommendation would be start out with something easy. Something, you know, that's a few ingredients, just something very simple to build your confidence and work from there. Probably a really easy recipe would just be a simple bruschetta. So I'll get a loaf of French bread. I'll slice it up. I'll toast it, brush it with some olive oil. Then I'll put some Narragansett Creamery Ricotta cheese on it, piece of general salami. And then I'll have had some tomatoes cut up that I had oven roasted with just a little bit of olive oil, salt, pepper, and garlic chop up some basil, put that on top of it, and then sprinkle a little pecorino romano on top. So it's like five ingredients, six ingredients, very simple. Oh, it is definitely people that should not be cooking. Anybody whose motto is, it will fill you up if you can keep it down, you do not want them cooking for you, because I have eaten the cooking of those people. So yeah, there are some people that should be, you know, only in the kitchen if they're washing the dishes. Otherwise, they should be nowhere near that stove. The best meal I've ever made, which I would consider my signature dish, is it's a seafood pasta dish. It's a fra Diablo sauce, which is a spicy you know, red sauce, and inside of it, it's gonna have uh, little neck clams, minced clams, scallop, shrimp, lobster, and calamari. Usually I fry the calamari and put that on top for a little bit of a crunch. So that's probably my signature dish. The worst meal I ever made was Probably a block of macaroni and cheese because I really wasn't too sure how to make it. Not being from the South, that's not really in my wheelhouse. Italians make their macaroni a certain way with, you know, a, a red sauce of some type or a gravy. So I attempted to make macaroni and cheese one time, and it was pretty much just like blocco cheese by the time it was done. You could probably put a fork in the middle of it and pick it up and just eat it right out of hand out of the whole casserole dish. My dream cooking job would to be to cook. Cookies or bake cookies on Sesame Street for Cookie Monster, because I grew up with Sesame Street. I'm 53 years old, and if you do the math, that's right when Sesame Street started. And if you look at my personality between Cookie Monster Hi. and Ernie, that is like me to a T. There's no way they did not have an impact on my sense of humor growing up. So yeah, yeah, my dream cooking job would be to <laughs> would be to bake cookies for Cookie Monster. My name is Dan Rinaldi, and this has been My Take on Cooking.
4: Dan Rinaldi is one of ten contestants from around the country featured in the new PBS cooking competition, The Great American Recipe. You can stream the series on Rhode Island PBS and follow Dan's progress.
3: Finally tonight, a sneak peek at Ken Burns' documentary on kids and mental health, hiding in plain sight.
7: I started having sad thoughts around the end of, 3rd grade? At that age how are you ever going to admit I can't see past tomorrow? It feels like you want to cry, but there's nothing there.
0: We all have stuff. We all have struggles. People do overcome having a mental illness. You're never alone and you're going to get through this.
3: Hiding in Plain Sight is now streaming on Rhode Island PBS Passport. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Wright.
4: I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories, our past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you and good night.